the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Floating fuel, choppering in farm equipment and even building a pipeline. Just a few of the harebrained schemes one farmer is contemplating daily as he remains trapped by floodwaters. More on that soon. Also today, major calls in Canberra to increase agricultural aid given by Australia. We have this opportunity to contribute to our region, to countries within our region, and knowing that we can do this really effectively to support you know, very small scale farmers and the way and the way that this is helping us to reduce poverty and increase stability within our region. They should listen for sure. Will the politicians listen though? And what is Australian agricultural aid and how does it work? We'll go through all of that today and more. It sounds like it's been a mighty tough week already in livestock markets. We've talked about that earlier in the week on the Country Hour. Tough week also in wool markets. We'll get an update for you on that right now. Let's update you on rural news, though, with Emma Field. Good afternoon, Emma. G'day, Warwick. Let's start rural news in Queensland, where some decent rains mean the Purusha in the southwest of the state is officially out of drought after almost a decade. But this leaves about 38% of Queensland still drought declared. With neighbouring Shire, most of the channel country, central Queensland plus outback northwestern shires, still very dry. But in the Paru Shire, Wyandra Grazier Peter Schmidt says he welcomes the news, but they are not out of the woods yet. North of Kalamala in the Shire, well, the Mitchell grass in the Mitchell grass areas haven't recovered, whereas uh, south of Kalamala down towards the border and to the southwest, the Mitchell grass areas have had a lot much more rain and uh, they've recovered well. But I would say that most of the Mitchell grass plants north of Kalamala, while there is an, an absolute good body of herbage around them, they're only probably 30% of what they could be in an optimum year. So there's a long way to go with the recovery of the Mitchell grass there. And how's your season been, Peter? It's been really good. Uh, with that qualification, of course, that the Mitchell grass, we haven't had that early summer rain for the last two summers. And, you know, we need that early summer rain and good heat to um, get the Mitchell grass going. And, of course, it was all starting with a very low base because of the tremendous damage that the kangaroos did to the Mitchell grass in the 2018-19 drought. Still in Queensland, about 200 kilometres southwest of Charters Towers, grazier Rebecca Lamont at Hyde Park Station has received 50 millimetres of rain this week. She says after nine years of drought, the rain is a game changer. We've had a fantastic season. It's been our best season in nine years, so no, we're really good this year. When you say your, fan, your best season in nine years, is that based off rainfall? That is, yes, yes. So for the nine years prior to this year, we we were sort of averaging 120 mils and 90 mils for the years. We, we've been in drought for the last nine years. So this year, yeah, it's really good. Ever since May this year, we've pretty much had rain every month. Modelling indicates feral pigs cause more than $100 million in direct economic costs to the agricultural sector each year and processing more feral pigs for consumption could help with this issue. But Charles Sturt University's veterinary professor, Shok Ufe Shamsi, says she has concerns about this proposal. We definitely need more information. We need to do more research, especially when we are consuming the feral pig. 
that warrants proper information about diseases they can transfer to human, um, you know, from food safety aspects of it. Yeah. And I don't think the information is there. If you, I mean, not only about the feral pig, about a lot of other wildlife and animals that live inland Australia, we almost know nothing about their diseases and their parasites especially. I did a quick search about knowledge about parasites of feral pig in Australia, and you just hardly find any information there. So something to, you know, definitely discuss, in my opinion, but it's too soon to recommend it as food. Salt marshes and mangroves all over Australia have historically been undervalued on farming properties and often viewed as wastelands with little economic value. But there's a renewed push to protect these threatened ecosystems as they are able to sequester carbon faster than tropical rainforests or plantations. Senior local land services officer in New South Wales, Sonia Bazuko, says she's been working with farmers in New South Wales' southeast near Pyree to fence off salt marshes on private land. Well, a lot of people don't even realise really what salt marsh is, um, and it, it is that um, intertidal community that's that's on the landward side of mangroves. Uh, so trees aren't able to grow in that area, and it's usually full of grasses, reeds, um, succulents, um, and rushes. Salt marsh is really important for lots of different reasons. Um, one reason a lot of people don't realise is that coastal salt marsh is able to absorb eight times as much carbon and 35 times the rate than a land-based forest. It's very important in improving water quality. So what it does is it actually acts as a buffer between the terrestrial and aquatic environment. So sediment and off-farm runoff, uh, such as nitrogen and contaminants, is actually filtered through the salt marsh and absorbed and recycled by the salt marsh. And for today, Warwick, that's Rural News. Thanks very much for that, Emma Field, there with Rural News. You're listening to The Country Hour. The second half of the program today, we're going to talk foreign aid in agriculture uh, with calls to increase what Australia does internationally in that world. But let's start locally by talking about floating 44-gallon drums full of diesel across flooded creeks, choppering in a grain-bagging machine, and being unable to irrigate a thirsty rice crop that has flood water lapping against it. We've spoken to Mullameen farmer Jeremy Morton in New South Wales and all of these things are confronting him as the floodwaters continue to surround his property and cut him off from the outside world. He says his current means of getting fuel to the farm is in 20-litre drums, but that just isn't feasible once he starts harvesting next week when he'll be going through 1,000 litres of fuel a day. It's pretty much an island where... Where we are, you can't get in. You can't get in by road. So we're we're actually boating in, just coming in in a tinny. But yeah, like we've we've run out of fuel this week, so we haven't got any fuel. And obviously, you can't get fuel delivered. They can't get into the property. So we're we're trying to work out how how we can actually get fuel in. And got lots of different ideas, but uh, yeah, we haven't actually worked out what we're doing at this stage. But that <laughs> been been carting in twenty litre containers just for you know keep excavators and and vehicles and things going but you know we're going to start harvest probably a week week or so and you know we'll be chewing through a thousand litres a day so it's not really practical to bring over a thousand litres in 20 litre containers. Lots of ideas as you said I've sort of seen using a helicopter or an air tractor or, or floating across 44 gallon drums or or a pipeline across the water. Is any of it achievable? Oh I think all of it's achievable Obviously, if you start um, helicoptering or or bringing it in in a in an aeroplane, 
um, that's going to make it very, very expensive fuel. So it's obviously better to, to try and just, you know, get it over, you know, either pumping it over or, I mean, 44-gallon drums is a bit, bit of a challenge. They're, um, they're pretty slippery and difficult to deal with. Trying to get it up a, a wet, slippery um, yeah, creek bank's not going to be much fun. And 200 litres at a time, I suppose you just, you know, probably you'd get in what you need, but it's, it's still yeah, less than ideal. The pipeline idea, I mean, the, the stretch of water you've got to traverse isn't, isn't that wide, so is that possible? Well, that's certainly what, what we're looking at. Um, you know, sort of fuel distributors are reluctant to, to do anything that, you know, risks getting fuel into, into streams, into waterways. It sort of, you know, goes against what, what they're allowed to do from a risk point of view. So uh, it's probably down to finding some way of, of actually filling you know, a tank on, on one side and they fill it up and drive out the gate and then we have to make our own arrangements about how we get it over. So you as the farmer, you need to carry the risk. That's the way things are these days, you know. Before anyone does anything, they assess the risk and, and if they think it's unreasonable, then they just won't do it or they'll try and find a way of minimising the risk. But <laughs> we're at this point now where there aren't too many options about how we can actually you know, get get the fuel in. So, yeah, it's sort of extraordinary circumstances. If you can get fuel in and you, you can get harvesting your winter crops, you're also going to have a problem with what you do with that grain? Yeah, certainly. We've, we've got a little bit of on-farm storage, but most of it's actually got, got grain in it, stuff that we haven't sold, stuff that we've, you know, kept for the drought when it turns up, like silos full of oats and things. So, yeah, then we've got to work out how we... we I mean, we, we could just harvest it and dump it on a pile on the ground. It's actually safer in a pile on the ground than sitting on the stalk. You know, you could dig a hole and put it in the ground. We've sort of looked at, you know, trying to get a bagger in, but uh, again, you'd have to you'd have to airlift that in. We thought we'd be able to get one in. We had sort of one last access point that I went and checked on Sunday, but the floodwaters sort of had come up to that and cut that off. It's a long way. It's sort of 15 k's out sort of through two neighbouring properties, but yeah, the floodwater, I wasn't expecting it to get up there, but it has and it's gone over the channel so we've lost our last access point um so yeah maybe choppering a, a bagger in uh yeah <laughs> yeah un- unusual sit- situation and un- un- unusual circumstances so jeremy you've you're trying to organize your winter crop harvest but at the same time you've got your rice crop you've managed to get some rice sown but you've got this perverse sort of problem where it's actually short on water and you, you can't irrigate it because the channel's been cut to let flood water through? Yeah, that's right, Angus. The irrigation channel that supplies my paddock, yeah, while it did have a pipe under it, it was obviously not sufficient to let the amount of water come through and it was just all backing up. So they actually decided to, to cut it and let the water through, which is, again, that's extra water that's coming into this creek that's cut us off as well. But, yeah, so the, but the, the flood water is actually lower than the, the water was in the channel, and now I can't actually get any water onto my rice crop. So Murray Irrigation, who supply our water, are trying to work out how they can actually get a pump in to pump the water into my paddock. But, yeah, again, it's, it's a risk thing that they're struggling with how they're going to get, get the pump into me because they've got to get in through through all this water so I don't know how we'll go with that I'll have that conversation shortly with them but you know, I think they're struggling to work out how they're actually going to get a pump to me. And you've got all this flood water around you but you're not allowed to use it to, to irrigate your rice? No, no you're not allowed to, to pump flood water and well, unless you've got a licence but yeah this is this paddock yeah, it's supplied out of a, a channel system not, not, a, not a river pump even though there's flood water 
<laughs> basically right next to it. Yeah, I can't. Um, yeah, I can't use that water. That's Jeremy Morton, a farmer at Moolamine, speaking there to Angus Verley about the. Well, I called it harebrain schemes earlier, the idea of uh, trying to pump fuel across floodwaters or float 44-gallon drums, but it must be uh, a time for invention, really, when you are flooded in like that, especially coming into a busy harvest period. You're listening to The Country Hour. It is 17 past 12. Well, earlier in the week, we spoke about the difficulties facing livestock markets with money coming off uh, lambs in sale yards by up to $50 a head, $70 for sheep. Big falls in the Eastern Young cattle indicator and cattle prices as well. Well, seems livestock aren't only immune. Um, the wool industry fibre has seen big falls as well this week to help explain what is happening. Marty Moses from Moses and Son Wool and Broking can join you on the program now. Welcome back to the country. Yeah, good morning, Warwick. Uh, what is, has happened to wool markets this week? Just by how far have they fallen? Look, we've seen a, a drop in the EMI, which is a broad indicator um, of 32 cents down to 12.24, which historically now we're going back into, you know, uh, October, November 16, 17 type levels in Australian terms. And uh, alarmingly in US dollar terms, it's dropped to 8.20, um, so off 14 cents. But that takes us right back to levels at 2010 i believe uh, and maybe yeah I've, I've just got to do the finer ones 829 it got to in 2015 uh and we're right back into 2010 where it dropped below that um 820 mark so look i mean you know and the, the principal um underpinning factors here as just the world economies uh suffering under inflation, high interest rates, high energy rates. You know, there's just this long list of um, negatives, wars between Russia and Ukraine. Um, the UK is in a mess. You know, the whole world's just suffering enormously. So uh, wool is now the, at its cheapest point in US dollar terms for over a decade in 12 years. Yeah, that's that's right. And and that reflects, um, you know, if you think about pressures coming on the, the household uh, expenditure, discretionary spend. Um, you know, people aren't going to go out and spend money on luxury items, which wool is uh, essentially. And you know, the new suit, the the new uh, you know t-shirt for running, or uh, you know, next to skinwear type garment might just have that last that little bit longer. And and uh, I think that you know the world's taking a big deep breath on how they're going to approach um, the cost of living pressures. Uh, you know over the next year or two or three. I think it's just going to be a, a real uh, wait-and-see type um, situation. And, and, of course, China are suffering under the, um, the President Xi's shutdowns of, of whole cities and industries, if you like. And China's uh, the for... biggest buyer by far of Australian yeah. wool. And so is that having a real impact, given we've seen protests and, and the situation in China really ramping up this week? Yeah, absolutely. Even though China is still active, that they're you know in some sectors they're they're buying selectively to keep mills running. There's no trading going on, uh, the, so the trading exporters are very quiet this week. Um, and you know, operating largely for European and Indian orders uh, orders outside of China because the Chinese are just so quiet. There's uh, no confidence there at the moment. Uh, and as we've seen riots in the streets of, you know, the university students uh, reacting to the shutdowns and, and the impact that's having on, so on that country. So You're a wool broker. Uh, wool isn't the the most perishable product. So are growers starting to hold on to their bales given the market's falling so quickly? 
Look, um, there's been a couple of um, realms that we haven't seen for a while, which is in the in the height of spring, we've had a lot of the country up here in New South Wales flood affected. And so receivals have been below par for a month or two now as people either had shorn and couldn't move the wool off farm or have been landlocked um, or waterlocked more so with the floods to the north of us here where, you know, where we are in New South Wales. So, um, you know, not you don't have to go too far out of uh, Tamora here, which is the centre of New South Wales, um, to find um, areas that are still, you know, where there's water lying everywhere and there's, you know, people can't get sheep to shearing sheds. Uh, there's helicopters out west, you know, moving sheep out of flood zones um, in, in, in a respect to the rivers uh, swelling and, and coming down. So there's been a whole, you know, crisis management, uh, uh, you know, situation going on, and that has slowed down receipts. In the last uh, 10 to 12, 14 days, there's been no rain and things are starting to, to um, you know, open up a bit and, and receivals are really cranking now, which is a month or two behind our normal peaks in this region, and I suspect that's uh, been right across the the eastern seaboard. So we're going to get volumes into a, a market where it really probably can't handle it, and that that's more alarming now than uh, I think ever. Because if China doesn't come back in, who are our volume buyers? Um, these thirty five, thirty three thousand bale offerings go to forty five or fifty, um, then the market's in serious. Uh, uh, you know, risk of, of falling even further. So despite you pointing out earlier that wool's almost at its cheapest price in 12 years, you think the markets could still have further to fall? Yeah, look, I think confidence is going to be difficult to reinstall unless we see one or two or three of the major issues going on around the world, like, you know, some resolve in the uh, dispute between the uh, the Ukraine and, and, and Russia, where it would free up a lot of the world's resources that we need to get, you know, energy prices back down. And it'll have an offset somewhere with grain and, and oil seeds as well. But, you know, there, there's some really big things happening all at once in the world, and most of them are negative. There's not a lot of positives there. So we're going to go through a pretty tough time. And I think, you know, confidence in in sheep meats, especially mutton, is um, you know that's reflective as well. Um, you know, it's it's you know really good that people that can grow grain and all seeds are going to have reasonable years uh, where they're not waterlogged. Um, so we're starting to get some some reasonably good figures coming out of the canola harvest so far in parts of New South Wales. Not all, some of the disastrous, but. Um, you know, there's this real uh, balancing act of some people have benefited from COVID and, and the, the season and the war and others have really hurt. And I think Wool's done rather well over the past, especially the finer end, over the past maybe, you know, 18 months to two years, with the exception of crossbreds, of course, which are just cheap, um, bumbling along the bottom and, and, you know, not a lot of hope for a big rise coming at any time soon. So, but, you know, we've seen a massive... Um, drop in the 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 record highs we've seen in, in super fine wools they're now coming back on a weekly basis as well because they you know they need competition from China who buy quite a bit of fine super fine wool. So what's the mood like I'd imagine between farmers and and obviously as you say you're in New South Wales where there's been other issues like floods and and such a wet spring to deal with but I spoke to a couple of brokers today and people in the wool industry just to try and get my head around these big falls and and more than one person said look it's it's been a bloodbath this week in terms of the prices falling so quickly and it's been a while since we've had a week like that um is that sort of a general sense of, of the mood that things are turning 
Yeah, look, um, yeah, just to highlight that, 17 micron indicators dropped from $26 down to uh, $21.33. Uh, so, you know, five it, bucks. It's a big drop. Yeah. Five bucks in anyone's languages, you know, d- regardless of where it's coming from, is a big movement. And, the, you know, state of confusion of do we hang on um, and wait for a the possible kick that might happen in 2023? Or are the... Um, you know, or is China just going to plough ahead under President Xi, and he will act out his um, his plan for COVID management, and, and will that just you know get people switching off wool in the manufacturing sector? Because uh, no one's going to take stock at levels at any level unless they know they can actually push it through the system. And I think you know that's the sort. It's hard to get good feedback out of um, uh, the you know, the Chinese news agencies, but we believe that's what's happening. And, um, you know, certainly not the expert there, but that's that's a big fundamental um, pain in the uh, the rear for the wool industry and others. Something to watch closely for sure. Marty Moses, thank you very much for your time on the program today. A pleasure, Warwick. Marty Moses there from Moses & Son Wool Brokers taking you through the situation with wool markets and a huge fall in their value this week, adding to that the sheep and the cattle prices that we've seen fall greatly over the last week as well. You can tell us how you feel about that. Send a text 0467842722. Do you think you can see when things might turn around or are you worried about the big price falls that we are seeing? 0467842722. Let's move away from flooded crops. Let's move away from geopolitics with China affecting the wool price and talk berries right now. Bad weather and a labour shortage are causing heavy, ha- have, causing headaches, there we go, for one of Gippsland's few berry farms. Cathy Taylor, owner of the Sunny Creek Organic Berry Farm at Trafalgar South, says the berries are ripening slower than usual. However, the demand for her raspberries collapses after Christmas Day. She's now in the situation of trying to get as much off as she can with workers that she can get in time to make the most money. She's speaking here with Madeline Spencer. The weather has impacted our berry harvest in several ways. First of all, it's very late. It will be one of our latest seasons we've ever had, and that has a great impact for a lot of different people. Uh, it has an impact for us because it means that we've got pickers, backpackers sitting in Sydney and places around waiting to turn up at our place to start picking, so they can't start work yet. And also, before Christmas, there's always a huge demand for berries, particularly raspberries and blackberries, and we'll only have a few so that the price will go up, unfortunately, for consumers. The pick-your-own people will come and they'll have to work very hard to get their berries before Christmas. Uh, for us personally, it's an impact on our business because you can sell as many berries as you can pick and get into the wholesale market, into all markets before Christmas. But as soon as Christmas Day comes, the demand for raspberries particularly just plummets. So between Christmas and about the 5th of January, it's very hard to sell a lot of berries into the wholesale market. So that means we have to look at different ways of selling our berries. But it's a bonus for our pick-your-own business because our pick-your-own business picks up from Christmas onwards. And those people particularly, they really want um, berries. And usually in a normal year, by about January the 10th, we're at the end of our season, whereas this year we'll flow all the way through the school holidays with lots of berries available. Does that give you some concerns, knowing that more wet weather and um, yeah, potential yes. damage is coming? Yes, it does give concerns because we always hope that we're going to have a dry berry season because uh, raspberries particularly need to be picked dry and every day that it's very wet you can't pick 
So instead of the raspberries ending up in the wholesale market at a premium price, they end up in the freezer as jam grade. So we've got our finger, all our fingers crossed that the severe wet weather is past us and we'll actually get some warm weather to ripen the berries um, and also to be able to get them picked. And can you tell me a bit more about, um, yeah, having backpackers and those sorts of people on hold? How does that sort of work in terms well, of getting them? <laughs> yeah. Well, backpackers are back and that's just wonderful after the last two years of not being able to get workers to actually have people on a waiting list waiting to start. Well, there I've got several backpackers sitting in Sydney who email me say, "Are you?" Because we've told them a date that that we would like them to start, which is late this year, December the tenth. And if they get here and the berries aren't ready when when they arrive, then we will just have to put them and get them doing farm work until the berries actually come on. But it, it impacts them because they're waiting as well. And I know we're not the only business where. Um, backpackers are waiting to start uh, work, but the berries are not there to pick. Must be a real juggling act. That's owner of Sunny Creek Organic Berry Farm, Cathy Taylor, speaking there with Madeline Spencer about how, well, things are unfolding for her season there. I can see some of your texts coming through, especially on wool. I'll get to those in a minute. Right now, though, let's find out what's making regional news headlines with Beck Simmons. Hi, Beck. Hi, Was. Good afternoon. A push by the Greens to have a National Energy Transition Authority has been criticised by a leading Victorian energy policy executive. The Victorian Energy Policy Centre says the proposed authority, which would coordinate transitions in fossil fuel-reliant communities, would add another layer of bureaucracy with little tangible results. However, Latrobe Valley's Voices of the Valley welcomes the push, but said if it does go ahead, it would need to cater for more than just energy transition, broadening to manufacturing and things like that. Submissions to the bill relating to the plan closed this week. Ballarat has had its wettest spring on record with almost 390 millimetres of rain falling over the past three months. It surpassed the previous record of 374 millimetres set in 1916, courtesy of Ballarat's wettest October on record and more than double the average rainfall in November. Hamilton also broke records with last month being its wettest November on record. Warrnambool recorded 96 millimetres of rain for November, making it the wettest November since 2007. A 63-year-old man from Curting will face a Bendigo court next year after allegedly being found with a large amount of gunpowder as well as ammunition for rifles and shotguns. He's one of four Rebels bikey gang members from Bendigo, banned from being found with or using firearms for the next 10 years. Police searched the gang members' homes in North Bendigo, Lockwood, Curting and Strathfield, say yesterday, and three of them were found with weapons. A greyhound welfare group is calling for an independent review of a sa- of safety at a dog racing track in northern Victoria. Nine dogs have died at the Shepparton track this year, according to the stewards' reports, which the Coalition for Protection of Greyhounds says is the highest number of any track in Australia. The Victorian government says Greyhound Racing Victoria is reviewing the track conditions at Shepparton. Greyhound Racing Victoria was approached for comment. The federal government is asking councils and community organisations to take part in the Disaster Ready Fund consultation process. The first round of the fund will begin early next year to help communities better prepare for future disasters. The funding will be for infrastructure projects to reduce vulnerability and systemic risk reduction projects like improving collection and sharing of data and land use planning. Is that you, Dunbeck? 
That is. Thank you very much for that. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't want to jump in in the middle of your report. No, no, no. Always a pleasure. Hey, on the Berries Creek before. Yeah. I have always wanted to do that. I remember all the kids at school, because I grew up around the corner from there, and Mm -hmm. my school was around the corner, they just loved going out and picking up all the berries, but it was great to hear that Kathy's finally got some workers. Even though they can't work, she she was having a lot of trouble getting people and backpackers over the last couple of years, so yeah. You know, my problem with um, Pick Your Own, though, is you always end up picking too much, or the kids end up picking too much. Oh, I think I just make myself sick. (laughs) Your your wallet gets a lot lighter (laughs) as well. That's that's the problem. But yeah, thanks for the heads. Thanks, Waz. Uh, Beck Simmons there with regional news headlines for you. Weather on the way. The Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Just on the issue of the massive price slides to the value of wool this week, uh, Merv from Euston says, G'day, Was. These wool prices are pushing us to get out of the industry. Higher inputs, shearing, chemicals, etc. It's just not viable for our type of wool, which was the 20 to 23 micron category. It's a worry. But I'm never saying never to Dorpers. No, but I'm I'm never saying never to Dorpers. There we go, Merv. Hopefully I got that right from Houston there. Uh, talking wool prices as well. Uh, 1300 two. if you want to give us a call. Another one for the Weather Bureau today. Hi, Was. Can you ask the weather person weather for Ballarat what that's going to look like? I want to cut my hay. I need two weeks of dry weather to get my 100 hectares cut, says Henry. Well, we can try for you, Henry, but uh, no promises on keeping the on the two-week period of dry weather, given what we've had this spring. But someone who can tell us more is Simon Timkey, who is the Senior Forecaster at the Weather Bureau and can join you now. Hi, Simon. G'day, Warwick. How are we looking, I suppose, today? Have the Ballarat two-week dry weather period in your mind for the forecast. Oh, I was going to say, boy, he doesn't want much, does yeah. he? Two weeks of dry weather. <laughs> yeah, in a La Nina year. Here we yeah, are. Yeah, yeah. He'll need to keep his fingers crossed for that, I think. But we'll um, start with today. How's it looking yeah. today? Yeah, look, today we're, we're in a, a south-to-southeasterly airstream, so quite a lot of cloud um, uh, on and south of the divide. And, and the odd light drizzly shower in there as well. Not expecting any big totals, but there will be a little bit there. North of the Divide, plenty of sunshine um, today. Uh, and, and there is a trough just in the in sort of central parts of New South Wales that's extending down into uh, the northeast of Victoria, which might see a, a little bit of shower, possibly a, a thunderstorm there as well during the afternoon. But again, not expecting any big totals out of it, but there could be the odd rumble of thunder up there. Um, the, the reason for the south-southeasterly airstream is around the eastern side of a high-pressure system currently centred south of Kangaroo Island. That's going to move slowly eastwards over the next couple of days um, and we'll see conditions become more stable uh, uh, under the influence of that feature. So for for Friday, I think it'll be mostly dry right across the state, maybe just a slight chance of a shower in the far northeast. bit of early fog about uh, uh, Gippsland areas as well tomorrow morning. But other than those two things, I think dry across the state, a little bit warmer than today as well. Uh, And then on Sunday, when that high gets out to the east of Tassie, directs the winds uh, in a more northerly direction, we'll start to see things warm up a bit. I think over um, northern parts of the state we'll see things get, uh, get hot um, and Saturday will be dry right across the state, I think. And Sunday 
will be mostly dry and continue to be hot ahead of the next change. Um, so warm south of the divide, but hot to the north and over the far west of the state as well on Sunday. Mid-30s sort of ter- territory on hot, aren't we? Is that right? Yeah, look, I think uh, up in the northwest of the state, even into high 30s, wouldn't be surprised to see some some, some 38s up that way. So getting, getting pretty hot, um, uh, even a, a sort of low-intensity heat wave flag for the far northwest of, uh, of, of Victoria. So not enough to put a warning out, but certainly uh, one of the hottest days that we've seen for a, for a fair while, I think, Warwick. And then into the next week, what's it looking like? Yeah, look, there's a change moving across Monday. So we'll see um, cooler southerly winds develop behind that change. So the heat isn't lasting too long. The showers um, on and south of the divide coming through on Monday uh, and chance of a thunderstorm over central and eastern districts as well as that trough moves across. And then cooler conditions um, continuing on Tuesday with uh, some showers around mainly in the south again chance of a thunderstorm in the east on Tuesday as well and then those cool conditions continuing through Wednesday and Thursday next week so uh, a, a little burst of summer but uh, not lasting too long. And then that brings me to Henry he wants the two weeks dry weather for Ballarat but, but can you give us an idea of rainfall in that region over the next week or so? He's going to get at least three days of dry weather, I reckon, through Friday, Saturday, Sunday. But uh, but two weeks is uh, is really stretching it, so he'll have to work hard as as far as the uh, work fast, I should say. As far as the rainfall totals go, not really expecting anything um, too 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 heavy at all. Um, but there will be uh, some some falls, maybe getting um, uh, up to the sort of the wetter areas, up to 5 to 15 millimetres over um, some of the eastern parts of the state. And I think that wettest period is probably Monday and Tuesday, where uh, I think in the south, 1 to 5 millimetres each day, um, 5 to 15 millimetres possible over the eastern parts of the state. And, and if you do pick up a thunderstorm, you might see some falls in that 15 to 25 millimetre range. So a, a little bit there, but certainly nothing like we the rainfall totals that we saw through spring. And warnings-wise, I suppose we've just been clearing off a lot of those finals and minor flood warnings over the last few days, apart from obviously the Murray and Edward, which will be around for some time. That's exactly right, yeah. So it's a, it's a decreasing list of, of flood warnings now. So the, the ones finalised this morning were the, the Thompson, the Latrobe um, uh, and the Broken. Uh, and then we've still got miners out for... Um, for the Kiwa, the Campaspe and the Loddon, and then, as you mentioned, the Murray and the Edwards uh, ongoing significant flooding there. Well, Simon, it's been great to have you on board Team Country, our weather report today. Uh, look forward to chatting to you more in the future. Thanks a lot, Warwick. I look forward to it too. Senior forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology there, Simon Timkey, taking you through the weather in uh, for the next week or so uh, for you. And we even got the personalised weather report for you there, Henry. Not the best news, not what you were looking for, but yeah, you at least got the information you were looking for. That's the main thing. A feature interview coming up next on The Country Hour with calls to increase Australian aid in agriculture. On ABC Radio Victoria, you're with Warwick Long for the Victorian Country Hour. Yeah, in Canberra today, two former agriculture ministers from opposite sides of the political aisle are in Canberra calling for an increase in the giving of agricultural research and development as part 
of the Australian aid program. Only 2.5% of the Australian aid budget is spent on agricultural programs. And both Joel Fitzgibbon, formerly of Labor, and John Anderson, formerly a national, are giving a joint presentation to the National Press Club and meeting politicians to pitch the case for an increase. The money funds hands-on work and programs which can change the lives of small-scale farmers and communities in poorer nations around the world. Dr Jenny Hanks, a livestock specialist with Melbourne University who works with the Crawford Fund, which works in this space quite a lot, is supporting that call. And instead of speaking to the politicians, I really wanted to speak to Dr Jenny Hanks, uh, who says she's seen the benefits that this aid can bring. So I've been very fortunate to be one of many Australian researchers working uh, in international agriculture research and development. Firstly, I guess my first experience was volunteering in Laos. Um, I then had experiences working on ACR, so Australian Centre for International Agricultural Research, uh, livestock projects in Myanmar and in Pakistan. What kind of work were you doing on on the ground in those countries? Um, So these are research projects to support smallholder farmers, so farmers with a few numbers of cattle or sheep and goats or chickens um, and support them in ways to improve their productivity and profitability of their farm enterprises. And to do this in a kind of uh, way that engaged the community so that there was lots and lots of capacity building working alongside veterinarians um, in Myanmar or in Pakistan, um, as well as you know, extension officers and the, the, their livestock department um, and other government organisations. Really grassroots agriculture where if you make a small difference, it creates a huge difference in someone's life. Yes, I think I think that's probably a good way to describe it. Um, farmers that we worked with, as I said, were very much small scale, and, you know, and obviously this was their whole livelihood. And so, um, in in many cases, that small changes could make significant differences for them um, at an individual level, and then I guess more broadly within their communities. Um, so, I've got an example of one farmer we worked with. Uh, her name was Doyin Tay in Myanmar, and she was particularly involved in. She's a chicken farmer, so involved in the activities we had around that. So we supported her and, and other chicken farmers to access things like coops to protect their chicks from predators, higher quality feed, vaccinations against Newcastle disease, and overall we saw that that decreased chick death by about thirty three percent, and there was about a doubling of income for these farmers. So, you know, I guess she was just an example of one of the farmers that we worked with there. Do you think a lot of people, I suppose, in Australia would realise that we have researchers like yourself and others that are, that are working in, in this space in other areas of the world to basically give communities and, and small-scale farmers in those areas a better life? Probably not necessarily. I think, um, you know, thinking back on, to my first job uh, as a, a vet working outside um, of Melbourne in Bacchus Marsh, I definitely did not think this is, what, you know, a kind of a career pathway that I would have the opportunity to take. But I I definitely advocate for it. And I think, you know, there is um, a growing kind of network of of, uh, people like me in these kind of early mid-career stages 
um, who want to support each other. So I've been involved with the RAID Network, Researchers in Agriculture for International Development. And I guess that's, you know, that's essentially what we're trying to do to connect, engage and support these early career researchers. Calls being made today, Joel Fitzgibbon and John Anderson, both former agriculture ministers from, from different sides of the political aisle as well, both members of the Crawford Fund Board. They're calling for an increase in some of this uh, type of research for international agricultural research and development as Australia's aid. Only 2.5% of the aid budget is invested in this kind of work. How much more of a benefit would more funding be to the kind of work that you have done? I think there's there's huge benefits um, already, and I guess that additional funding would only amplify those kind of benefits. So the reports, um, as you mentioned, uh, highlight the economic kind of benefits as well as the social benefits. So already we're talking about, uh, in terms of economics, a staggering return of on investment of ten to one. And in terms of social benefits, there's a whole array of benefits. So there's things around food and nutrition security, environmental and economic sustainability, gender equity and regional stability. And I guess, you know, I guess taking a more personal look or like bringing it back to the research that I've been involved with, you know, ongoing funding, the the knowledge that these kind of projects can continue and to uh, and build on the partnerships that are established would be, um, you know, I think they could offer some really fundamental shifts because often projects are, are relatively short-lived and it takes a long time to establish those kind of partnerships that can really effectively cha- um, tackle these complex challenges. So I think that would be a, a huge, I guess I can't put a number figure on it, but I think that would really make a difference in the way that we can work and, and work most effectively. Given the work that you've done in places like Myanmar and Laos, you've seen some of those differences. You've seen some of that social change. Do you Have you got experiences and so forth that you can draw on when you when you think back to your time about some of the change that the, the research and the aid work you've been involved in has done? Um, Yes, I guess another good example is um, from some work that I've been involved with recently in in Pakistan. First went over 12 years ago as a student and and now uh, joined joined the project again in the kind of later stages of the project. And and they've been uh, very fortunate to have ongoing funding throughout that period, which is, is quite unique. And I guess a good example there is what I've been working on earlier this year around the team of researchers and extension officers supporting smallholder dairy farmers in forming farm business groups. So what we saw was that we were able to support farmers in developing skills in understanding the value of their animals, you know, doing simple things like weighing their animals before sale, but also things like calculating gross margins and so they knew, you know, how much their animal was worth and then collectively discussing some of these benefits, I guess collectively discussing sale prices before they sold their animals uh, helped them to improve their bargaining power and improve the profitability of these farms. So I guess to me that really highlights how engaging kind of as a community, it's it's not necessarily just about the technology, it's also how um, we support 
each, I, I guess, as a research community to work together, you know, across uh, Pakistan and Australian researchers, but then also support those local communities to work together um, in ways that can improve their profitability. And the knowledge isn't lost then from, from that previous work, from being there a decade earlier to seeing it a, a decade later. Obviously, with whims of government, sometimes uh, funding for programs can can come and go. So the idea that of the length of a program and the knowledge staying there must be adding to its success. Absolutely. I think that's yeah a huge part of that project. Is that something that increasing a focus on international aid as agricultural research and development on the ground in these countries can bring longevity to programs which bring bigger benefits over a longer period of time? Yes, I think so. And I think would be a, a really important aspect of um, increased funding. That I guess what that allows then is that kind of continued capacity development of both Australian researchers and our partner country uh, researchers as well as extension officers and um, farmers that are involved. And I think not only does that mean there's greater benefits to those overseas communities that we're working with, but also to Australia. I think, you know, that the the capacity that uh, I guess for me personally that I've developed as a researcher has been huge and, and like I said I didn't ever expect I'd get these kind of opportunities but you know this that that kind of ability to gain new skills and knowledge also then kind of filters down to what it what it means for Aussie farmers so that uh, things like accessing new plant varieties that are developed through the CG system, the Global Network of Research Centres. That's something that Australian farmers have access to because of our investment in international agricultural research and development. And this, you know, obviously helps the competitiveness of our farmers. I guess the other kind of key benefit there is us, you know, always being involved in our region, you know, knowing what's around, is that uh, Australian researchers, biosecurity managers, can study potential pests and diseases before they reach Australia. So I think it's uh, that idea of uh, doing well by doing good is really applicable here because by us assisting um, and contributing to uh, to the sustainability, to the development of countries within our region, that also greatly benefits Australia. And we've seen that this year, haven't we, with uh, Australia assisting countries like Indonesia so much with their foot and mouth disease outbreak or East Timor with their African swine fever outbreak that effectively can stop pests and diseases from coming here whilst also benefiting the country undergoing an outbreak with specialist services or diagnostic equipment or other research and development. Yes, absolutely. You're listening to The Country Hour. We're speaking to Dr Jenny Hanks, who's from Melbourne University, a livestock specialist, also working with the Crawford Fund. And we're speaking about international aid and it calls for an increase in international aid, specifically in the field of agricultural research and development in, in other countries. What's the attitude like from other countries in your experience to having Australians working in programs like this in their countries? My experience has been that they've been very, very receptive and a critical component of that is the kind of dialogue that happens before any project is started to really understand what are the priorities and needs of that country, 
you know, at a, a broader level, but then also kind of once a project starts, trying to delve down into what are those kind of priorities at a local community level. And I think Australian researchers do that really effectively and the ACR model really supports that. So, um, like I said, very, very receptive, I guess, particularly I'd say my experience in Myanmar um, working there, you know, after the country had been very closed off to a lot of international uh, collaboration for many, many years. They were just kind of beside themselves. They were so enthusiastic about the opportunities for capacity development, for this exchange of knowledge um, that was yeah, very, very welcoming and, and a great to be a part of. Do you hope political leaders and other decision makers in Canberra today listen to people like the two former agriculture ministers, John Anderson and Joel Fitzgibbon, and these calls for, for increased aid to these areas? Uh, absolutely, Warwick. I think there's a really compelling argument um, here that that supports um, this call that's been made around increased funding. The phrase "doing well by doing good" really sums it up here. That we are we have this opportunity to contribute to our region, to countries within our region, and knowing that we can do this really effectively to support you know, very small scale farmers and the way and the way that this is helping us to reduce poverty and increase stability within our region. You know, people like the World Bank have shown that the best way to reduce poverty and to raise the GDP of the world's poorest countries is through agricultural development and the great benefits that Australia also gains from being involved here. So things like that of soft power, the diplomacy aspect as well is hugely beneficial to Australia. So I think they should listen for sure. That's Dr Jenny Hanks, a livestock specialist with Melbourne University and a committee member with the Crawford Fund in the ACT, which is an organisation that promotes Australia's role in helping agricultural development around the world. They're launching two reports tonight in Canberra uh, titled Australian Gains from Investment in International Agricultural R&D 2010 to 2020, Doing Well by Doing Good, uh, and the benefits to Australia and to the global community from investing in international agricultural research and development and meeting with politicians and speaking there tonight are two former agricultural ministers, uh, Joel Fitzgibbon and John Anderson, who are both board members of the Crawford Fund, both pitching to try and increase uh, the money spent in Australian aid uh, for agricultural programs and research and development in international parts of the world. Although, as I said to you, I think it was better that we spoke to someone who was doing the work on the ground rather than the pollies in the call. So that's why we spoke to Dr. Jenny Hanks today on the text line. Uh, this one says, not just government that does agricultural overseas aid, NGOs, charity welfare groups, permaculture, and even traditional Aboriginal elders exchanging practices with African countries such as fire management or using acacia seeds. Yeah, of course, but this is the pitch. That's what we were talking about to try and increase the government funding in their aid programs for such services. And Brian says, tell me if I'm wrong, but didn't this ideology push uh, manufacturing towards undeveloped countries and did not end up well for this country? Uh, Brian, yeah, are we doing that poorly uh, because of that? Certainly certain industries did poorly, and I can take your argument on that. But overall, struggling to get workers in a number of workforces and uh, 
And the job market, I'd imagine, is pretty strong for workers wanting jobs in Australia right now. Uh, you can let us know what you think, though. I'm happy to continue that conversation. Send us a text, 0467 842 You'll hear more of me now, but this bit's important. Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au Proudly supported by the Condinen Group and ABC Rural. Uh, sorry about playing something with my own voice in it, but the Farmer of the Year Awards are my favourite part of ABC Rural, the favourite thing that we do each year. It's a great celebration of individuals doing some exceptional things at different ages and stages of their career, and I love it when Victorians win. We had a New South Welshman win last year. Let's not continue that theme. So if you know a great Victorian farmer, please go and enter the Farmer of the Year Awards. You can nominate yourself. You can nominate someone you know. Uh, would love more Victorian winners, and that is the most parochial you'll get me on the country hour. So you've already heard Wool's having a shocking week. Let's find out what livestock markets are doing and if their slide's continuing. We'll go to Bansdale Cattle first with Brendan Fletcher. G'day, Brendan. G'day Warwick, numbers increased to 170, that's 20 more with most of the usual buyers operating in a mixed market. Quality was very limited with cows making up over two thirds of the sale. The sprinkling of prime cattle sold significantly cheaper in places but were too few to quote. Heavy beef cows sold firm while dairy lots improved a little. Heavy bulls lifted 25 cents. A pen of veilers made $4.28. A few grown steers to restockers, $4.12 to $4.14. Manufacturing steers, $2.84 to $3.70. Most light and medium weight cows, $1.78 to $3.22. Heavyweights, $2.56 to $3.52. Heavy bulls, $3.17 to $3.60. To processors with one returning to work for $3.80. This is Brendan Fletcher reporting for MLA. Thanks very much for that, Brendan. Let's find out if the sheep and lamb markets are coming back. Uh, Leanne Dax is at Wagga. Good afternoon. There were 32,000 lambs and 15,000 sheep at Wagga in a very mixed yarding of lambs with a lot of store lambs pushed onto the market again this week. Prices were 15 to $20 cheaper across the board. Heavy lambs topped at 252. They ranged from 215 to 250. Trade lambs sold anywhere from 160 to 205, averaging around 720 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Store lambs were back 15 to $20, ranging in price from $40 to $85. And light secondary lambs were back $20 to the processors. Sheep are at the moment being sold. They are selling $20 cheaper, averaging around 300 cents a kilogram carcass weight. I'm Leanne Danks for MLA. Thank you very much for that, Leanne. And that's about all the time we have for you on the Country Hour today. Remember the website, abc.net.au slash rural. You can go back and listen to Victorian Country Hour episodes or programs from other uh, Country Hours around Australia. You can also read great stories like the difficulties facing the cherry a season. You can find out more information there with Annie Brown's story or Jane McNaughton's story on turning farm crops into energy, particularly farm crops that are having 
difficult years. Funny story, that, considering what we're going through this year. Go online and read about them there. Otherwise, we'll catch you on the radio tomorrow. Catch you then. Catch you then.